Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. Down the line from New York, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. And our guest here in London is Philippe Bordereau, who's a senior portfolio manager at PIMCO. This week, we'll be discussing the latest trends in bankers' bonuses. Also, a look at the jitters in bank bond markets. And finally, from the US, a review of quarterly bank results so far. Laura, though, we'll start with bankers' bonuses. You had a, a very interesting analysis of some of the trends we're seeing in bonuses, where junior staff are coming off better than senior bankers. Yeah, I think overall the message has been that banks are definitely more concerned about keeping junior people in their seats than they are about keeping the senior bankers. There's a number of reasons for that. It's harder for the senior bankers to move anyway because they would have a number of years deferred compensation built up. So they are not as mobile anyway as their juniors. But the main issue for the banks really is that there just aren't enough staff at a certain level. So we're not talking juniors who are just out of college. We're talking people who've been working at banks four, five, six, seven years. So they have that level of experience which enables them to be useful to banks but they are not yet on the con of superstar pay that some of their more senior colleagues would be. And the reason that there are so few of those in the banks now is because in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis, banks would have hired far fewer analysts, far fewer interns. So the pipeline is much weaker, which then does lead to increased competition for those who are in the market. And laying some off, of course, over the past few years. What does this translate into in terms of hard numbers? In terms of hard numbers, I mean, anecdotally, we hear from banks and we hear from recruiters that bankers at the lower end of the scale will be seeing bonus increases anywhere between 10-20% on a like-for-like basis, whereas at the senior end of the scale, it does really vary depending on your bank. In the US banks, they've kept overall compensation pretty flat. In the European banks, some of the banks we do know are making big cuts to their overall bonus pools. So we're expecting Credit Suisse for its investment bank and for its securities division to cut bonuses overall by more than 30%. Deutsche Bank may make similar cuts. Deutsche recorded a very big loss in the third quarter and said at the time that would impact bonuses. So those two banks were expecting a big cut to the overall investment banking and securities bonus pool. We expect that to translate into very sizable cuts for some of the senior staff so they could see their bonuses being 50, 60, 70% lower on an individual basis. The one thing it's very important to say is as you go around talking to both European and US banks, they all say this is going to be a year when there's going to be a really big differentiation between those who are doing their jobs well and those who aren't. So previously, a basic bonus was kind of seen as your entitlement. Bankers expected a bonus of a certain level just for doing their job at a kind of normal skill level. And if you listen to the European CEOs who have been most outspoken about bonuses, Deutsche Bank's John Cryan and Credit Suisse's Tijan Time, they've both been talking about bonuses and the culture not really being pegged to rewarding people for exceptional behaviour anymore. And the message there is that if you are doing your job exceptionally well, then you will do well in bonus season, but it is no longer an automatic entitlement. So even within those banks, so 
Deutsche and Credit Suisse, where overall across divisions, there are large bonus cuts. The really good performers in the really key areas are going to see increases. And finally, you had one very sweet anecdote about Deutsche Bank and the senior managers giving up some of their own money. Yeah, some of the Deutsche Bank senior managers are so concerned that they're actually returning some of their own bonuses so that they can share them out among their juniors. There are some very practical considerations to it. I mean, given that their new CEO has been so outspoken on the bonus culture, it would certainly play well for them. So anyone politically inclined, you know, you can see how this would be a good tactic for them. The other thing is that if you lose your juniors, it does make your own life harder because it isn't so much now that if you lose your analyst this week, you can go and hire a new one next week. You might have an emptied seat on your team for several weeks, which can make life much harder for the MD. The other thing about it is that because there is such a big pay gap between those at the top and between some of the juniors, the amount of paying relatively wouldn't be that high. So we looked at one example and I think we found that if a senior banker was to sacrifice a fifth of his bonus, he would be able to increase the bonus of a 18 of his junior people by the fifth. So there is a really big gulf between the amount that the guys at the top are paid. They can have a big impact on someone lower down without necessarily feeling that much pain themselves. Martin, you had a final thought. Call me an old sceptic, Patrick, but I do wonder whether things are really changing in this world. As Laura mentioned, the heads of Deutsche Bank and Credit Suisse, the new CEOs there, have both talked very fine-sounding words about changing the compensation culture. But we understand that one of those banks recently hired a top-name executive from another bank with a large guaranteed bonus and a very big sum of money. So whilst they are still talking down bonuses and saying that they're going to have to clamp down on this, you know, there are still some of the old practices afoot. Indeed, I'm sure that will uh, be ever thus. Let's move on to our second topic for the day. There have been quite a few jitters in the bank bond markets of late, as in so many markets, I suppose. But this is related not just to broader nervousness in the markets, but also to the changing profile of bank bonds, the bail-inability, to use a horrible word, of these bonds in times of crisis. And of course, we've had a few instances around European institutions, such as Nova Banco in Portugal, of bank bondholders seeing the kind of real dangers of their investments. Martin, you've been looking at this whole topic. I have. And it seems as though the Novobanco case where almost 2 billion euros of bondholders were bailed in effectively, they were transferred to the bad bank of Novobanco and lost 90% of their money, it looks like. So that is having ripple effects across the entire Eurozone bank bond market. And this coincides with the introduction of Europe's new regime for bailing in banks, which, as you said, puts the emphasis on bailing in the bondholders rather than using taxpayer money to rescue troubled banks. Now, given the scale of some of the non-performing loans in these Eurozone banks, particularly the periphery, particularly Italian, Spanish, Portuguese banks, Greek banks, you know, they've got some of them, 35% of their loans are considered non-performing loans. We're talking about 50 billion euros of non-performing loans at Unicredit, uh, 40 odd billion at uh, Monte de Paschi. So we're talking about hundreds of billions of euros of non-performing loans. And where's the source of the money coming to clean up that problem? Possibly going to come from the equity markets if they all raise lots of equity in an ideal scenario. But the bondholders are starting to worry that they could end up being on the hook if those banks fail or are put into resolution by the regulators and they can't raise equity, then the bondholders are realising they're going to be on the hook. And we're seeing bond prices of these banks starting to be hitting the market and their shares are certainly being hit this week in Italy, for instance. And I spoke to uh, Philippe Bodoro at PIMCO. He's head of financial research and a portfolio manager at PIMCO. 
And I started off by asking about the wider impact of the events at Novo Banco in the Eurozone debt markets. I think it certainly is an event that's caught the attention of people invested in those bonds, but obviously those that were not, because this is, I think, an important read across here. But the arbitrary and unpredictable nature of resolution of banks in Europe, this is not a bail-in. Now, we're not against bail-in. This is a retroactive confiscation of liabilities that directly discriminates against institutional investors and foreign investors. So it's a very bad precedent. And obviously, there has been a read across. And, you know, you haven't really seen a broad contagion similar to what something like this would have triggered two or three years ago before we had QE in Europe. But certainly for the names that are under stress, whether it's the other Portuguese banks, whether it's second tier Italian banks with very large book of NPLs, you've seen some pretty dramatic moves in the way their you know, senior bonds and subordinated bonds are, are trading. Uh, that's been very notable in Italy in particular, where you have a number of banks there that are in the midst of looking for private sector solutions to recapitalize. And I think those efforts could be actually undermined by the uh, amount of uncertainties uh, that are coming out of the Novo Banco precedent. So what's happened to the prices of the bonds of some of those banks? The prices have fallen, the spreads have widened significantly just since this Novo Banco action by the Portuguese Central Bank. Yeah, there's a select group of what we call stressed banks, where you've seen spread widening of, you know, two, three, four hundred basis points, which is a very big number, obviously. And basically means that for sure these are institutions that have no market access. And I think in general, investors will become much more concerned about investing in smaller banks, in smaller countries that seem to be subjected to different treatment by either the ECB or by their local resolution authority. So people are worried that what's happened to some of the senior bondholders in Novobanco could be repeated at other of the Eurozone's weaker banks. I think the signaling is that if it gets to that point, even simple principles of law will be buried in the name of financial stability and public interest, which is exactly what happened in Portugal. You know, the action is obviously very questionable, you know, discriminate against the specific category of investors or to discriminate on the basis of their nationality is obviously very questionable legally. But the fact that it's been allowed to happen under the watch of the Portuguese government of the Bank of Portugal and the ECB certainly raises some grave concerns. Philippe, thank you very much for joining us. For our third topic, we're going to take a look back at the past few days in terms of US bank results. On the line, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor. Ben, welcome. We've had four or five of the big US banks now reporting numbers. And I guess overall, it's fairly downbeat. Would that be the kind of broad synopsis? I think so. If you look at the share prices, which have been sold off violently amongst all this global fears over China and oil and so on. But um, underneath all that, there are some pretty encouraging performances, I say, especially from formerly beaten up banks such as Citi, which actually saw some revenue growth, as did Bank of America reporting on Tuesday morning. JP Morgan also increased its net revenues by about 1%. Wells Fargo, of course, always delivers like a metronome quarter on quarter. So the underlying performance of these banks has been okay, especially the big universal banks, which have all benefited to some extent by hopes of uh, future interest rate increases. What about in the investment banking field? The kind of bad news story of the past few quarters has been around fixed income. 
it was quite interesting to see Bank of America reporting pretty upbeat numbers on the fixed side in contrast to the others. That's right, yeah. Bank of America is a bit like City, which sits beneath JP Morgan, Goldman and Deutsche as the huge flow monsters in fixed income. And that those two banks, City and B of A, have inherent advantages being money centre operations. They have an enormous amount of treasuries, for example, and, and enormous amounts of connections with huge multinationals. So if Nestle or DuPont, for example, needs a loan in Indonesian rupiah, there's no problem for them. So they have all this stuff lying around, essentially, which Morgan Stanley, which reported this morning, doesn't. And, uh, of course, it's tried to reduce the scale and the size of its fixed-income trading operation over the past five years under James Gorman. And it looks as if the measures taken so far just aren't enough. Investors have been asking for deeper and, and swifter cuts. And a month ago, Morgan Stanley did cut about 25% of its front office staff. But from the looks of things, uh, there's this new strategic update this morning looking out to 2017. There are going to be much tougher measures in store for them. One of the last US banks to report is going to be Goldman Sachs. And then, of course, we're going to get the Europeans in the coming weeks. What are the results so far? Tell us about the likely uh, performance of both Goldman and the Europeans, do you think? Well, I think the focus will be on their um, fixed income sales and trading operations, of course. We could have a little bit of tunnel vision over here, but I think that will be a strong theme. Credit Suisse, we wrote about in the FT on Monday, probable big cuts there focused to some extent on the FIC operation. Uh, the problem is that these businesses used to be right at the heart of banks. Morgan Stanley, 44% of net revenues in 2006 were from trading bonds and commodities. And now, thanks to a combination of cyclical and structural factors, they're just not as profitable as they used to be. And you, you can reduce your inventories all you want. But ultimately, if, if your clients aren't doing trades with you, then you have a problem. And I guess in terms of the Europeans, that's particularly bad news for the likes of Barclays, Deutsche and Credit Suisse. So we'll report back on those over the next few weeks. For now, Ben, thank you very much for your insights. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Laura here in the studio, Ben in New York, and also our guest here, Philippe Bordereau from PIMCO. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Goodbye.